I'd like to address the world through the medium of the latest wonderful invention so that my voice, like my great show, will reach future generations and be heard centuries after I have joined the great and, as I believe, happy majority. Welcome to Becoming Barnum, the journey to fame and fortune, a podcast presented by the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport, Connecticut. The Barnum Museum has a unique treasure in its collection, a 750-page copybook of letters written by Phineas Taylor Barnum when he was traveling in Europe in the 1840s, introducing his young protege, General Tom Thumb, to millions of ordinary people, as well as royalty and high society. These letters offer a unique glimpse into the life of P.T. Barnum as a husband, father, mentor, and entrepreneur. Join us as we travel back in time and learn about the real person behind the legendary P.T. Barnum through his own words. If you enjoy this episode, we would appreciate it if you would subscribe to our podcast to help our rankings and support the Barnum Museum. And now, on with the show. Wonderful Discoveries. Throughout this podcast series, we've focused on P.T. Barnum's correspondence with individuals, such as his family members, friends, employees, and people with whom he conducted business. But there are other letters in the copybook, 29 to be exact, that we haven't fully embraced, except in our second episode. These are Barnum's letters to the editors of the Atlas newspaper in New York. They were published as a serial and were thus composed for an audience, not private correspondence. However, as we near our series' conclusion, it is useful to draw upon a few to help fill gaps in our storylines, as well as get a sense of Barnum's reactions to seeing France and Spain for the first time, albeit as related to a public audience. We'll share a few excerpts in this podcast. By way of context, we should explain that each of the letters is several pages long, and they appear clumped rather haphazardly throughout the copybook, not neatly interspersed at regular intervals among the personal letters. The first one in the copybook, dating from July 1845, also happens to be the first letter, but it is only a partial one starting midway through. Barnum numbered it 69. From there onward to letter number 97, quite near the end of the copybook, these Atlas letters represent over a quarter of the total that Barnum wrote while in Europe. But this series was not his first endeavor working with that paper. In 1840, Barnum committed to writing for this Sunday sheet, as it was called, and it was relatively new at that point. The publication had commenced two years before as the Sunday Morning Atlas, and by 1840 it had been renamed the Atlas. Later on it was called the New York Atlas. The paper's circulation was high, but it was not really a newspaper. Rather, its focus was serialized fiction and gossipy stories, and in general the fiction was not of high quality. The tone of news articles leaned to sarcasm, and the editors often ridiculed what were becoming important social movements of the time. According to James W. Cook, editor of The Colossal P.T. Barnum Reader, the Atlas was a popular paper but its content was not particularly commendable, which is likely the reason so few issues have been preserved in archives. You may recall that as a young man in the early 1830s, Barnum began his professional career with his own newspaper, the Herald of Freedom, 
a weekly paper that he published in Bethel, Connecticut, for three years. He was thus already familiar with the newspaper business when he approached the Atlas, although his Herald of Freedom was not of the same stripe. But Barnum was convinced he could turn his experiences as a traveling showman into a serialized story, and for its part, the Atlas was anxious to get the inside scoop on the controversial exhibition of Joyce Hath, no matter if it was partly fabricated. Barnum really needed the money at that point in his life, and apparently saw no harm in capitalizing further on what was a shameful exploitation. After all, it would be a fictionalized account, a story, rather than a news article. All this was prior to Barnum becoming the proprietor of the American Museum. He was determined to find a way to get on in the world, as he would put it, and to support his wife and growing family. He set to work juggling other obligations at the same time. Barnum's novella was published the following year, beginning on April 11, 1841, in a 12-part series titled The Adventures of an Adventurer. The adventurer's name was Barnaby Diddleum, an obvious alter ego for Barnum, since the first and last syllables of the name spell his own. While the identity was no mystery to many, one should bear in mind that P.T. Barnum was not yet famous, though he had achieved some notoriety in 1835 and 1836. Over an eight-month period during those years, he exhibited an elderly and very frail woman of color, Joyce Heth, whom it was said was 161 years old. Supposedly, she had lived her life enslaved to families in Virginia and then Kentucky, and in the former had helped raise none other than the boy destined to become the nation's first president, George Washington. The story of Barnum's quite troubling but hardly unique exhibition of a human curiosity, in this case a very aged and nearly blind black woman who had no agency and virtually no physical mobility, is a significant part of his adventures serial. The tone is brazen and unabashed, and the account is full of, let's say, truth adjustments crafted to enhance the story's appeal to Atlas readers, as well as share the calculating cleverness of Barnaby Diddleum. This version, in combination with both the false narratives and true-ish, or semi-truthful, articles published by newspapers at the time of Heth's death in 1836, adds to the complexity of distilling facts. For the purpose of this podcast, however, our point is that the style of writing preferred by the Atlas sought to hook readers and kindle their anticipation for the next chapter in a series. To that end, tone and language ventured into the trashy and provocative, lacking in tact, facts, and objectivity. For that reason, we largely skirted the Atlas letters for this podcast series in favor of focusing on the correspondence that would illuminate Barnum's relationships with individuals. But that doesn't mean his Atlas letters aren't worth reading. For one thing, they do illuminate Barnum's early efforts to cultivate audiences by meeting them where they are. Fast forward from 1841 to January 1844. At that point, Barnum had two years of museum proprietorship under his belt, and was about to go off to Europe with General Tom Thumb, accompanied by a small entourage. Before leaving, he made arrangements with the editors of The Atlas to be a foreign correspondent, with the plan to write a travelogue series. Perhaps he felt his extra job would assure him of some modest income while abroad, a small hedge in case his success with the tour fell short. Barnum committed to writing 100 articles, 
a decision he regretted by the autumn of 1845 when he found it difficult to keep up. Nonetheless, he was good to his word, living up to a trait he valued in people and one often mentioned in his letters. Barnum directed his travel letters to the Atlas editors, Messrs. Herrick, West, and Ropes, or sometimes just to West. The obvious purpose of these was to give readers an idea of the daily life, history, and culture of people in the United Kingdom, Belgium, and France, and, as it turned out, northern Spain as well, and to share occasional adventures and humorous moments of the Tom Thumb tour. Barnum, the quintessential promoter, surely saw the potential for financial gain beyond what he received for supplying narratives. This was a golden opportunity to step up public name recognition of himself, General Tom Thumb, and the American Museum, and more than likely this would bring more visitors to the museum. In addition, the American Museum's reputation would only be enhanced by the added élan of a well-traveled proprietor who sought to educate as well as entertain the public. Barnum's shtick, after all, was selling respectable entertainment. Few people at that time had the means or desire to cross the Atlantic to sightsee, so Barnum planned to share what he observed during his travels in Europe and relate his experiences and opinions thereof to the public. But from our present-day perspective, the way Barnum expressed some of his opinions is hard to swallow. There are several letters that are rife with derogatory comments and downright mean remarks. At best, one could say they were insensitive and tactless. Among the milder statements concerning the characters of the French was Barnum's assessment of their veracity and trustworthiness. After months of difficulties working with town mayors and theater directors in the provincial areas, Barnum opined that the laws of France appear to have been specifically made for a nation of rascals, and that there may be plenty of honest persons in France, but I have not had the good fortune to encounter them. His language is more colorful in other letters. People whom Barnum and others considered the peasant class were looked down upon, and it is clear he felt they were not as smart as hard-working Americans who could figure out how to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. So they became the butt of his jokes and derision. But then, so too were Tom Thumb's parents, Cynthia and Sherwood Stratton. In their case, Barnum disliked their willful ignorance and putting on airs, and so he did not hesitate to share the foolish and petty things they said and did, all to give Atlas readers a good laugh. And as far as appreciating another culture's cuisine? The unusual, and to Barnum impossible to identify, ingredients of French cuisine were another target for his Yankee brand of humor, though, of course, those remarks hurt no one. He shared his view that many French eating establishments were scarcely endurable to look at, due to their lack of cleanliness, and described the floors as having the accumulated filth of years and cooking spaces that resembled a hogsty. A counterpoint to that was his admission that the French were meticulous when it came to linen tablecloths and bedsheets, which he noted were pristine, of purest white. He was also generous in describing the cleanliness and even the elegance of the Hospital de la Marine in Brest, run by the Sisters of Charity. In that vein, Barnum also commended the French for their care of the poor, proclaiming, Never was there a country where better care was taken of the poor and unfortunate than in France. Never were persons more devoted nor more disinterestedly engaged in charitable pursuits than many of the nuns and sisters of charity in this country. 
What absurdity it is, then, for persons to talk about the wickedness and abomination of this or that religious creed. The latter comment was made in reference to the French population predominantly being Catholic. Barnum, having been raised in Protestant New England, certainly did not embrace the Catholic faith, but his eyes were suddenly opened when he saw the selfless work of French nuns. But as we shall see in his descriptions of Spain, he was unsparing in his criticism of Spanish Catholicism. Similarly, when Barnum wrote about the people in Montauban, one of the agrarian communities in southwest France, his comments about the women's physical appearance were merciless. His remarks are not only rude, but also reveal a very Anglo-centric attitude and total lack of appreciation for the fact that he was stepping back in time, as it were, in this area of Occitania, seeing a way of life that had persisted for centuries. Not that he didn't appreciate the historical character of places he visited, but apparently when it involved humans, that was a different story. How much of that language truly reflects his attitude and how much can be chalked up to his style for the Atlas audience is hard to say. Consider the following comments. For my own part, I am astonished that people ever get married in this country, for it would seem that the hardest features, the brown and sallow complexions and masculine forms of the females, would drive the thought of love entirely out of a man's brain and heart. The idea of female beauty vanishes on beholding these slaves to the soil. Dress them as men, and their sex would never be suspected. In fact, nature seems to have lent herself to destroy all outward marks of distinction between the sexes in this country, I mean among the peasants, for the upper lip of the females almost invariably bears a light mustache, and I have frequently seen females here who had a heavier beard than I ever yet could cultivate. Ye gods, but this is a damper to a man's admiration of the softer sex. I would advise all jealous wives to send their husbands for six months among the peasants of France, and if they did not on their return fully appreciate the beauty and loveliness of their own wives, they might be set down as lost past redemption. This was Barnum's first exposure to people who lived very close to the land and whose beliefs, customs, language, their whole way of daily life had remained firmly rooted in the past. He perceived them as backward and dirty, and even disliked the ancient style of the women's clothing, which he felt was not only visually peculiar, but also ugly and unflattering. Today, such comments would be considered offensive, but in Barnum's era, that was an acceptable style of writing for a travelogue. In fact, Mark Twain's book, The Innocents Abroad, published nearly 25 years after Barnum's letters, also contains disparaging commentaries about people whose living conditions were deemed primitive. He was especially disgusted by people who rarely washed, and pointed out the irony that he and his fellow travelers were corralled and fumigated by such people, who feared cholera coming into the country, although in his view they themselves were unhygienic. But on to the good stuff. We had learned from numerous personal letters that Barnum planned to take General Tom Thumb to Spain to meet Queen Isabella II. She wished to see him, an invitation that was practically a royal command. Yet Barnum never shared the outcome of that side trip with his correspondence. However, he did narrate the event and the lead-up in four of his Atlas letters, numbers 84 through 87. While in Bordeaux, Barnum described how the visit came about, explaining... The Duke and Duché de Namur and the Duke d'Aumale are to go to Pamplona, a town in Spain two days' journey from here, to visit the young Queen of Spain who comes from Madrid for that purpose. 
Her Spanish Majesty has forwarded an invitation through her consul here to General Tom Thumb to visit Pamplona on that occasion. The smiles and patronage of royalty are not quite so much of an object now as they were before the little general had cut so big a figure among the crowned heads. However, it would be ungrateful in us to turn up our democratic noses at the invitation from royalty after all the benefits we have derived from it. So I have concluded to honor the young queen with my presence in company with the illustrious little general. There appears to be great difficulty in finding a proper husband for the queen, and as I hear she is a little body, I half fear she will propose to the general. If that should unfortunately be the case, and he should accept, there will be an end to my speculation. Describing the visit in another letter, he remarked, The Queen of Spain has kissed the general and given him a charming present, and we also by her invitation, or rather command, occupied a royal box and beheld a Spanish bullfight, got up in honor of the Queen of Spain, her mother, and the Duke and Duchess de Nemours. An extensive description of the bullfight is also given in letter number 85, though it is clear that Barnum borrowed liberally from other travel authors to describe the customs. No doubt Barnum plagiarized because he was constantly pressed for time and couldn't possibly take in all the necessary information during such a brief trip. He even confessed to one of the editors that he'd had to copy from other publications, though that was not an uncommon practice in this time period. We found one of his sources. His description of the proceedings of a Spanish bullfight were lifted from a book called Gatherings of Spain by Richard Ford. Barnum also wrote about his impressions of Spain's religious customs, the churches and clergy, and specifically the widespread and deeply held belief in purgatory. He viewed these with cynicism, especially in regard to the ways people's fears were manipulated by the clergy to benefit them monetarily. Worse, it was another way in which money was wrested from the poor. The parish clergy set up beers in the streets, which are ornamented with real skulls, they never omit a large dish into which the smallest contributions are received. The great attraction is the representation of the suffering souls, which appeal ad misericordium et charitatem of all beholders. The hope of releasing a sufferer from the fire extracts the last mite from Spanish poverty to pay for holy water. What struck me as particularly funny was a printed notice on a flat board attached to church doors reading as follows. This day you can get out a soul. Was there ever such a deep, cunning set of fellows as these priests? His revelation continues. The indifference which all Spaniards exhibit toward their own and their friends' bodies when alive is made up by the tender anxiety they evince for the souls of mere strangers if in purgatory. As those who once get there are sure of eventually being saved, they are called benditos, blessed by anticipation. The great object of survivors is to get their friends out of limbo as soon as possible. This can only be done by paying for masses and holy water, every drop of which sprinkled on the tomb puts out a certain quantity of the fire below. Many people leave legacies for masses for themselves, with a well-timed proviso that whatever remains unexpended after they have been rescued should go in ultimate remainders to the most unprayed-for soul in purgatory. Though acknowledging Spain's great achievements in history, Barnum observed that the country had now sunk to far less glorious times, which he felt was due to the government's ineptitude as well as external forces. The general poverty of Spain is very great, the natural consequence of foreign invasion and civil wars. 
On the subject of street people in Spain, he told readers, You will recollect how I was beset by beggars in Belfast, Ireland a year ago, and you probably have not forgotten the story of the English beggar in London who preached such a pitiful sermon in the streets about the suffering of his dear wife and babies, his respectability, etc. But Belfast and London, Ireland and England, may hide their diminished heads with shame, for their beggars cannot hold a candle to those in Spain. The Spanish beggars are the best judges of human nature I ever saw, and they must be the greatest physiognomists and phrenologists living. They instantly know their customer, and they understand the best plan to deliver his breeches pockets from their loose change. The beggars are like the ogre in the nursery tales, who smell the blood of an Englishman, and they are not slow in sending out a genuine Yankee. They swarm on every side, they interrupt privacy, worry the artist and antiquarian, disfigure the palace, disenchant the Alhambra, and dispel the dignity of the house of God, which they convert to a laser house and den of mendacity and mendicity. They know well how to appeal to every softening and religious principle. They form the train of superstition and misgovernment, which defile the most beautiful and impoverish the richest portion of the earth. Turning to Spanish theater, Barnum had a much more positive reaction to offer. The great charm of the Spanish theater is their own national dance, the bolero, matchless, unequaled, and inimitable. This is the essence, the cream, the danse picante of the night's entertainments. However languid the house, laughable the tragedy, or serious the comedy, the sound of the castanet awakens the most listless, the sharp, spirit-stirring click is heard behind the scenes. The effect is instantaneous. It creates life under the ribs of death. It silences the tongues of countless women, and that of itself is little less than a miracle. Following a lengthy description of the dance, he concluded that Spanish bolero dancers are superior to the French dancers, as he informed the readers. There is a truth which overpowers the fastidious judgment. Anyway, then, with the studied grace of the French danseuse, Beautiful but artificial, cold and selfish as is the flicker of her love, compared to the real, impassioned abandon of the daughters of Spain. There is nothing indecent in this dance. No one is tired or the worse for it. The jealous Toledan clergy once wished to put the bolero down on the pretense of immorality, but the dancers were allowed in evidence to give a view to the court. When they began, the bench and bar showed symptoms and restlessness, and at last, casting aside gowns and beliefs, joined, as if tarantula bitten, in the irresistible capering. Verdict for the defendants, with costs. Finally, he offered his glowing admiration of Spanish women. I had intended to describe the beauty, the fascination of Spanish ladies, but the task is too overpowering for me, or indeed for any mortal man. Suffice it to say, this is a dangerous country to any except those who, like myself, have lived long enough to resist all temptations. General Tom Thumb and Sweet take formal leave of the Spanish court tomorrow and proceed on their tour through France. So I must say adieu and pack up my duds. All along, Barnum had been scrambling to keep up with his obligation to the Atlas, and in his November 1st letter to Editor West, he apologized, noting, I returned from London yesterday, and am sorry I have not had time to write two letters today, but I swear I'll send six by next steamer. My late letters are full of typographical errors. Another letter, this one addressed to all of the editors, pleads, Correct this letter, for I have not time even to look it over. Even so, at that point Barnum still hoped his letters could be turned into something more. 
He mentioned an idea to his friend Moses Kimball in December of 1845, suggesting that he might polish up his Atlas letters to write a book. As everybody who travels nowadays must write a book, I think some of revamping my letters to the Atlas and of writing some more in the same name of the general and publish a book under the title of General Tom Thumb's Travels in Europe with Remarks on Men and Manners, Courts, Kings, etc., etc. This brainchild soon faded, however. In early March, as Barnum was approaching his 94th letter, he was feeling quite dissatisfied with his writings and related his misgivings to a couple of his correspondents. His letter dated March 1, 1846, to Mrs. Henry Barnum of Bridgeport, confessed, I am going to quit writing for the Atlas. I am so full of business continually that I am constantly thinking of something else when I do write, and my letters frequently get so tame and dull that I get ashamed of them myself. And when a person gets ashamed of his own work, it is high time he stopped it. Interestingly, these comments suggest the unrestrained style he had cultivated for his Atlas readers had evaporated. Two days later, he wrote to museum manager Fortis Hitchcock and advised him, If West thinks about letters, tell him I have no time. And as I am getting cursedly ashamed of what I have already written, it is doubtful whether I will write any more, or especially more than enough to make up the hundred. Despite that pronouncement, a month later, on April 3rd, Barnum was apparently still prepared to compose a few letters for the Atlas, though he acknowledged their decline in quality and having copied others' words. As he told West, I am now getting a little time again to write, but I think my letters are getting stale, for I am getting lazy, and take much more from hard books than from my own hand, and therefore guess I shall not write very much more. Undoubtedly, Barnum was relieved to be free of his obligation when he completed the hundredth letter, which is not in our copybook, and then closed that chapter of his career. It is evident that he did not look back on his work for the Atlas with any sense of pride, as he does not mention the paper by name in his autobiography when referring to writing the Barnaby Diddleum adventures, nor does he give the name of that serial. Instead, he briefly noted, I wrote articles for the Sunday Press for the purpose of enabling me to keep the pot boiling at home. These productions afforded me a fair remuneration, but it was at best a precarious way of living. His later employment as a foreign correspondent for the Atlas is absent from the two-volume autobiography, a compilation of three of Barnum's autobiographies, published by Alfred A. Knopf in 1927. Editor George S. Bryan remedied this by adding a lengthy footnote about Barnum's travelogue, with an excerpt from one of the articles. We hope you're enjoying the episode. If you want to support us, consider subscribing to our podcast and leaving us a review. It really helps us out. To wrap up our last episode drawing from the copybook letters, we'd like to share a short passage Barnum wrote while in Bordeaux, France. This comes from an early part of the copybook, a letter dated August 26, 1845, and Adrian had noted it down as she was starting her reading journey, thinking it might connect to something Barnum would discuss in the later letters. Unfortunately, nothing on the subject was mentioned again. Though just a snippet, it caught her eye because it shares Barnum's perspective on two recent inventions, two of the many that defined the age of invention. Barnum's life nearly spanned the 19th century, from 1810 to 1891, and thus he witnessed and experienced a sea change in society, communications, and transportation. 
A significant driver of change, of course, were the tremendous advances in technology, and it is intriguing to consider what ordinary people of that time thought were the most important inventions. Barnum provided his take on this in a letter to Moses Kimball, his showman friend in Boston. In it, he put forth the following judgment. Certainly, the two most miraculous discoveries of the age are the electromagnetic telegraphic communications and the daguerreotype. The first brings the poles together. The last snatches nature in an instant and reflects the image on the plate with the perfection of a mirror. They are indeed wonderful discoveries. This was written just seven years after the introduction of the daguerreotype by Louis Daguerre, but still decades before the invention of the simpler and more durable photographic methods that allowed for printing multiples on paper. It was 30 years after Barnum proclaimed the telegraph one of the two most miraculous discoveries of the age that the telephone was invented, and we can thank one of those paper-based photographs from the late 1800s for revealing that Barnum had installed a telephone in his home. So how might Barnum have answered this most important inventions question in the later years of his life? Fascinated as he was with the new products of the era, he would certainly be open to many of the wonderful discoveries and might find it hard to decide. Following that thought, we should say there are certainly more wonderful discoveries to be found in P.T. Barnum's copybook, containing letters that are so rich in content and expressive writing. You yourself can peruse them in our digital surrogate in the Connecticut Digital Archive, virtually turning the pages and zooming in and around to read Barnum's own hand, which on the whole is quite legible if you read cursive. We hope you've enjoyed this thorough, though not exhaustive, introduction to Barnum's letters of the mid-1840s, which cover so many topics and connect us to so many of the people he worked with as well as his family members. The bonus of gaining insights into child performer Charles Stratton's early career as an international celebrity should not be underestimated either, for Charles himself was not a writer like Barnum, and letters written by him are extremely rare. All in all, it has been a great honor to share Barnum's own words with you on this journey through the hundreds of letters that document a very real and momentous journey for P.T. Barnum and General Tom Thumb. But we aren't quite finished. Join us next time to find out what happened in the years immediately following these letters. Thank you for listening to this episode of Becoming Barnum, The Journey to Fame and Fortune. Support for this episode is provided by the City of Bridgeport American Rescue Plan Act Funds, Peoples United, a division of M&T Bank, and the Connecticut Humanities and National Endowment for the Humanities. The podcast was produced by the Barnum Museum and based on the blog series Barnum's Letters from Abroad by Adrian St. Pierre. Editing and sound design are by Rui Pino, and narration is by William Saris. Kathleen Marr is our executive director, and John Swing is our COO. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and visit our YouTube channel for behind-the-scenes presentations of our collections and more stories about the legendary showman. Connect with us on social media and let us know what you think. Please tune in next time as we continue our adventures with P.T. Barnum.